The following program contains mature subject matter not suitable for young viewers and graphic images that may be disturbing. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello, everyone. It is Monday, Monday, Monday. I am the Fat Man Farmer, and we do not have Wee Wild Woman here today. We are, I am on my way to Indy to go pick up stuff from an auction I won, and Wee Wild Woman is at home with her new bottle baby. So we had six lambs born this morning, um, and she had to treat several of them. Um, two for hypothermia, one because we did not know who mommy was and another one who got left behind when mommy went and into the barn so uh, she we found a baby in our feed room a lamb and there's no real way the lamb could get to where it was at there, there's no sheep in that area it just appeared so we have no idea who the sheep this lamb belongs to so she took it in, warmed it up, is bottle feeding it, and it is in her room while she is doing homeschool at the moment. I am in the wife's car, so hopefully we have less road noise. It'll calm down here once we get off of our road, because our road sucks. You know, all those taxes we pay for roads in other countries. Anyway, so I recorded this podcast last week on Friday... But I was getting my GPS directions at the same time, and every time the GPS would come on to give me navigation points, it would stop recording audio. So we had all of these gaps, and I really don't know what was going on in between the gaps because I didn't have a script and I was kind of winging it. So today we're going to talk about some of the DIY, so the stuff that we make on our homestead from scratch. Some of them will give you how-tos. Some of them will give you tips or things we learned the hard way. So first off, we uh, we cook most of our dinners and meals from scratch. We don't do the box meals, the reheated, the, the, the microwave meals or anything like that. The reason being is the more processed, the more individualized packs you get, the more expensive is it going to be. So we get lots of the single-serve salads from the food banks that they can't sell because they're too old or they start wilting or whatever. And, you know, those run seven, eight bucks a piece, but yet you can go buy a head of lettuce and, you know, all the components of it, and when you break it down per serving, it's like a buck or less for the same size salad. But because somebody else prepares it for you, you're paying, you know, 10, 20 times sometimes as much. I mean, we're talking serious money when you start adding it all up. So it makes more sense to make all your meals from scratch. And we do that with a lot of things. We make our own, um, we'll go into all the different details. But I do have a list this time. Help me keep on topic. So when you're buying, we buy in bulk too. So instead of buying, uh, you know, a one pound or five pound bag of flour, we're buying 25 to 50 pounds usually at a time, if not multiple bags of that size. Um, same way with a lot of other things. If we can buy in bulk and break it down into smaller pieces, sugar, for example, um, you know, when we talk flowers, we 
want to say we probably have 600 pounds worth of different flowers. So we have bread flour, all-purpose flour, wheat flour, semolina flour for pasta, um, rye pa uh, flour for making sourdough and rye breads. Um, what are some of the others? We have almond flour. We have, oh, there's a bunch of different ones. But of those, some of those we have, you know, 150, 200 pounds because it's, one, it's cheaper to buy it bulk, and two, we don't like going to the store unless we absolutely have to. So, um, let me get my notes back up. So let's start off where, started off going through the list. We're going to try and group some of the things together. Uh, toothpaste. We make our own toothpaste. And one of them was to remove the fluoride piece out of it. Um, fluoride, which they put in your water, is toxic. If you look at the material safety data sheet, which is an MSDS, for what fluoride is, it's extremely toxic. Yet they add it to your water for your teeth. Which makes no sense to me that... You know, that's like drinking a bottle of suntan lotion to protect your skin. It's the same concept. So we're going to give a topical application of fluoride for your teeth, but give it to you so that it goes throughout your entire body. One, that doesn't make sense to me. Two, they have so many other chemicals and things that are non-value added in these toothpastes, like microbeads. Well, they've been showing that microbeads get underneath your gums, they're little plastic balls. They get into the environment. It's, it's not really a good product, in my opinion. So with the toothpaste, ours is pretty simple. Now, we wild woman does not use this toothpaste. She just can't get on board with it. So she gets a natural toothpaste from the store. Um, I think it's Tom's that she uses. We use, um, it's basically just baking soda and uh, peppermint oil. It's, it's the basic ingredients. We don't do the whole xylitol and flavorings and coconut oil to make it more um, like a paste kind of thing. It's just straight baking soda and a couple of drops of peppermint oil. And the baking soda is an abrasive to clean the teeth. And the peppermint oil will kill the majority of the bacteria and um, nasties in your mouth. So since we've been using that, no cavities, no issues with the dentist, uh, you know, it's been great. And we've been using that for 12 years, probably. So very simple. And, you know, it's not the dry baking soda and the, the peppermint oil. It is uh, baking soda, let's just say a half a cup, maybe two or three drops of therapeutic peppermint oil, not aromatherapy peppermint oil. There are two distinctions between that. Therapeutic is, um, you can ingest it, you can rub it on your skin. Aroma is only supposed to be used for aromatherapy, so it's uh, more volatile. I don't know anything else that they put in the aromatherapy ones. It may be 100%, but everything I've ever been told or read says use therapeutic oils. We also don't do the multi-level marketing of Young Living or doTERRA or any of those other oils. We get now NOW brand. It's got the same chemical testing and properties that some of those other ones claim. You don't have the multi-level marketing. It's 
10 times cheaper. So what we can get in like an 8-ounce bottle of peppermint oil from now, we might be able to get a 2-ounce bottle from Young Living. Maybe, you know, a half-ounce bottle from Young Living. So it's, it's night and day difference, and we've gotten the same quality. We used to do the Young Living, then we did the Neutera. Then we found now, way cheaper, way easier. You don't have the sales pressure and the whole marketing piece of it. Just a better product we like. But you put those two together and then add enough water to make it into a paste to stick to your toothbrush and away you go. And that's pretty much all that we do. Um, like I said, been working on it for 12 years at least. So uh, the next one on my list is laundry soap. Three ingredients. Again, um, as we started to remove a lot of the fragrances and chemicals from our environment, so we've done it with toothpaste, deodorant, shampoos, all of these things. Um, we used to do the whole fabric softener and all of this. Once we started cutting all these things out, our health improved. We had no more skin issues. We didn't have a smell issue where some of these smells bother us a lot. Um, you get used to them when you've been using them constantly. But now that we don't use them, we can smell so much better. We smell more things. Um, in our environment that are natural versus always being covered up by these chemical synthetics. So with the laundry soap, it's three ingredients. It is Fells naphtha soap. It's a bar. Um, they're usually like three bucks, four bucks. And you can get them at Walmart, Tractor Supply sometimes, uh, Rural King, those kinds of places. Um, washing soda, which is again at the same places. A box of that is like three bucks. I don't remember how many pounds. I think it's like a three pound box. And then a box of borax. And borax is a natural mined mineral. The borax is a whitening agent. So if maybe if you're on well water, you might want to put more borax in, in the recipe than the washing soda. But for the most part, I will take, we have dedicated pot for this and a dedicated grater for this, like the old school cheese grater, the four side ones. So I will grate um, one-third of the Fels naphtha bar into like, I don't know, six quarts. It doesn't have to be me measured, just, you know, I'd say between three-quarters and full of the pot because you got to add more stuff to it with water. So one-third of the bar sh shredded water. Um, probably a half a cup to a cup of washing soda and a half a cup to a cup of borax. And I don't really measure. I mean, I kind of eyeball it. It's about that much. The first couple of times I made it, I did measure. And I don't remember if it was a half a cup or a whole cup. So somewhere in between there. You can Google the recipes. It's not that difficult. Um, but we'll heat that up. So, again, one-third of Fels naphtha grated. I have probably three quarters cup of washing soda, three quarters cup of borax, and you fill most of the pot up with water, turn it on low, medium, heat it up until everything is dissolved and it's thoroughly mixed in so that you don't have any more shreds. It's all melted and into the solution. And then I pour that into a five gallon bucket, fill the pot up with warm water, pour that back into the bucket, and then do another third of the naphtha, three quarters of the washing soda, and three quarters of the borax. Fill it up with water, heat it till it's dissolved, put that into the 
five gallon bucket, another clean water, and then do the last third, three quarters of a cup, three quarters of a cup, fill it with water, melt it or dissolve it, put it into the bucket, and then another round of clean water. And then I'll add, fill to the five gallon bucket, I'd say mostly full, I'll leave a little bit, you know, for sloshing around and whatnot. Um, fill it up with the rest of it with water. I usually use warm or hot water this time. Um, stir it all up and let it sit for 24 hours. So the next day, I put a lid on it. The next day I will come and uh, basically it's turned into a thick, almost pudding-like consistency. So we have a dedicated spoon, metal spoon. We just chop it all up, swirl it all up so it turns into more of a snot type consistency it's 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 more like a liquid laundry soap at that point it's, it's thicker than water but it's not thick as pudding if that makes any sense so it's pourable and then we'll either use right out of that um, like a half a cup to a cup for your laundry and just put it in your liquid laundry soap in your uh, washing dispenser and that's what we've done now, sometimes we can add fragrance to it, but we will not add it in the washing cycle. We add it in the drying cycle. And you know, we've not even done this in probably 10 years. My wife wanted the whole smelly thing, but then after a while it got, why? Why are we wasting it to have the clothes smell like lavender or, or whatever? And most of my clothes ended up smelling, you know, floral type stints, and I didn't like it. So we stopped doing that, but we would add the essential oil in the dryer cycle like one drop maybe two and just let it toss around as it's drying but we don't use the dryer anymore so that doesn't even work um, but then you just wash your clothes as normal now some people will when they look up recipes for the laundry soap they just mix it as a dry ingredient so you shred your felsnaphtha put your your uh, washing soda and your uh, borax all together mix it all up in like a food processor or something or blend it and then you use that as a dry part I would not recommend doing that I have a friend who used to work in I think he still does in um, appliance repair and he indicated that he was getting so many calls from people using this type of dry DIY laundry soap that it was gumming up all the machines and that's because the fells naphtha and everything was not dissolving in the water or in the laundry so it would turn into like a gel then coat all of the inside of the lines and it kept building up and building up and building up until it would plug them up and then you would have an issue so by turning everything into a liquid it's going to be much more easily water soluble and will not clog up your lines like the other stuff would We've not had any personal experience with it being clogged up or using the dry, just going off of what he recommended when I talked to him last. So, you know, those three ingredients, the Fels naphtha, um, the washing soda, and the borax, um, I think the Fels naphtha is like 350 a bar, roughly. The box of the washing soda might be five, like I said, the borax and the soda both are like five bucks each somewhere around there now last time we bought this was maybe like three four years ago because we bought in bulk and we bought like eight containers of each and like a whole case of the fells naphtha soap mainly because we didn't want to have to keep going to the store so we just bought a bunch and none of it goes bad so it just was shelf stable and we've just been using off of that for a while 
Um, we have asked some of our friends who do buy laundry soap to save the plastic um, pour containers for us. And we'll refill those instead of the five-gallon bucket because it's easier to set it up on top of the washer and just pour directly or uh, use the little tab to pour it directly into the soap dispenser on the washing machine. So, that's our laundry soap. I mean, for what you're paying for the, the naphtha, the washing soda, and the, the borax, you could make probably 50 gallons worth of soap compared to what the regular stuff is um, today. So, like, you're getting two gallons of laundry soap, or sometimes it's four or five gallons. Either way, you're going to make get more for your money by doing it yourself. Plus, you don't have all of the unnecessary chemicals and fragrances and different things that they use to make it flow easier or, you know, make your clothes smell or fabric softener or this or that. And fabric softener actually doesn't make your fabric softer. It's a chemical that coats the fabric so you constantly have this waxy coating on it that's supposed to feel soft, but it actually is, is coating all the inside of your your clothes and your machine every time you use it and that builds up over time so fabric softener doesn't really go away it just coats your your clothing with a synthetic chemical and that was something that we were getting issues with of having skin and, um, I don't want to say allergies but it was an irritant so next on our list is odd but compost tea so we make our own compost tea, so it's like a fertilizer um, that we will put on the plants and plant starts and things like this. And uh, pretty much it's horse poo or goat sheep poo or any of the ruminants and some molasses. We use the blackstrap molasses, the unsulfured molasses, because sulfur kills bacteria put it in a big tank, maybe some um, charcoal in it, not the charcoal that you use for grilling, but you know, from a fire that you've had that leaves um, coals that didn't burn completely, or you can make your own by you know, burning wood in a low oxygen environment, and then adding an aquarium pump that bubbles through it and keeps it oxygenated. Let that sit for a week or two, bubbling and all the stuff mixing together. And then you'll take that out <coughs> in a pitcher or whatever, strain it through a cloth so that it doesn't uh, clog up your sprayer, or you don't even have to do that if you've got one of the pour waterers. And pour that around the base of all of your, your plants and vegetables, and they will absolutely love it. And what it's doing is increasing the micronutrients and nutrients for the soil life. And the soil life is what is actually feeding your plants. This concoction may feed some to your plants, but for the most part, it's going to feed all of the soil life. So you need to make sure that you have soil life, good organic material in your soil, and not spraying regularly to kill all the organic material. And uh, that's what feeds them. So here's an interesting kind of digress. So my grandmother would always say that you should take the water, whenever you boil corn or your vegetables or whatever, steam them, 
and you should put that after it cools on your plants. And I'm like, okay, well, I did it, and it actually works. It, it, it does improve them. I kind of did the whole scientific thing of where I did it on a couple to see what would happen, thinking that it may kill them, but those did much better than the ones that I didn't. And it wasn't until like 20 years later that I found out the mechanisms of why. My original thought was that boiling this and or steaming them, some of the nutrients from the plants got into the water and then the plants just reabsorbed all the nutrients that the ones that you were cooking lost. That's not the case. It's starch. So potatoes, corn, the starchier the food, the better. And that's the water that you want to use around the base of your plant. And again, it's feeding the micronutrients, or the, not the micronutrients, the microlife, the, the soil life, the bacteria, the fungi, all of those things are what's heating the starch water. So under the soil, there's a relationship between bacteria and fungi. It depends on what kind of soil dominance you have. Um, both of them work this way. But they're mineral miners from the ground. So the bacteria are eating certain minerals or certain pieces of the, the soil life to give nutrients to the plant. And in exchange, the plant manufactures sugars through photosynthesis. So what they'll do is they'll exchange one for one. The plant sends out signals to the soil life, whichever it is, bacteria or fungi, that, hey, I need, let's say, sulfur. So if the bacteria that mines for sulfur picks up the signal, it'll use acetic or uh, an acid to dissolve minerals in the soil, so rock, sand, particles, whatever, gets the sulfur, transports it to the plant. The plant then gives the soil life sugar in exchange. And this is how that symbiotic relationship works. So this is why when you see a lot of the dead soil, that when people have been, I say people, but it's usually big you know, industrial farms, applying all of these chemicals for pesticides and herbicides and, and all of these things, fungicides, they're killing the soil life, but then they have to come back and add in all of these extra things to give nutrients to the plants. Whereas if they would be working on a different model of feeding the soil to feed the plants, it'd be a heck of a lot cheaper. Possibly, but, you know, I'm not a big farmer, so I can't say that that would be cheaper, because then you're going to have weeds and everything else, or fungal disease, but that's a whole other discussion of healthy plants don't get attacked by pests and funguses and disease, weak plants do. Um, so anyway, back to the compost tea and, and the little side note. So when you're doing that, you're actually feeding the, the soil life and it goes into like super overdrive because of all of these starches that are in the water, in the soil, and it just starts producing everything. Anything that the plant could possibly want, it's now readily available in the soil based on the, the, the fungi and the bacteria. So, side note, kind of why we do some of the things that we do, but it, I thought it was interesting that took me 20 years and wasn't until my permaculture class that I actually learned why that was. I'm not in my car, otherwise I'd have something to drink and I am parched. Um, sourdough. So, 
not only do we make our own breads, so French bread, rolls, um, biscuits, all of those kinds of things from scratch, we make our own sourdough and we make our own sourdough starter. Super easy. I can do it. I used to not be the baker in our family because I can't follow a recipe to save my life. I always want to tweak it and do this, improve it, and you can't really just add a little of this and a little of that in baking because then you have too many wet ingredients, too many dry ingredients, too many ingredients that make it rise or not enough ingredients that make it rise or you kill the yeast. There's all these different things that have to go into baking and it's, it's a science and I don't like following the recipe. You would think I would be different from engineering and chemistry background, but no, I don't like following the recipe. So I can follow these recipes and you should be able to too. So if you go to King Arthur Flour website, on there there is a sourdough starter recipe. Now their sourdough starter recipe takes like seven to 14 days. Mine takes three. And the difference is what your household temperature is at. Our household temperature is 68-ish. Um, sometimes it's cooler, sometimes it's warmer, it just depends on the season. But for the most part, that's where our thermostat stays, heating and cooling. And sour, the, the yeast like to be at 75 to 85, so much warmer. Now you can put them in warming baskets, or you can put them in your oven on um, with like the light on, or are all kinds of different ways to put your starter to make it rise faster. One way is a, a, a dehydrator on low to keep the temperature up, but then you're also pulling away moisture as you're doing this. So my solution to this was using a seed starting mat. Um, I also like to do everything as cheap as possible until I figure out what I really need. Because why put a bunch of money into something that you may or may not like or you may not be successful at? Try around a little bit with what you have available and cheap stuff. So rather than buying all of these starter kits and starter incubators and things that I've seen for sourdoughs, I tried a seed warming mat and it's worked great for the last four years. So it's basically rye flour. Um, you put a cheesecloth on the top of it with some water. You make it like a paste or like an oatmeal type consistency and then you have to feed it every so many days and stir it and take out so much and then add so much back in. So like you take a half a cup out, you add a half a cup of, of uh, rye flour back in, stir it up, let it sit for another day. You keep doing this until you start smelling the, the sourness or you're seeing the bubbles start fermenting on their own. You do not add yeast. You want wild yeast for this. And there's yeast everywhere. It's all in the air, all over the place. Um, I learned through a discussion where I thought yeast was its own um, species or category, what do you call it, kingdom? No, it's, it's a mold. It's a type of fungus. So um, someone educated me, and I always remembered that because I was wrong, and I admitted I was wrong. Uh, I hate to be wrong. So anyway... Uh, you do this for so many days until, like, the King Arthur Flower said, do it for 7 to 10 days or 7 to 14 days. Putting it on the heat mat, I get results in, like, 3 to 4 days. So it speeds everything up. And then um, 
I'll just feed it every day. Sometimes I won't feed it for a week. Uh, we do have a special container um, for our our sourdough to keep it in, and it is a rubber gasket sealed. Uh, I don't know how to say it. A jar. It's like a flip top jar, and. Uh, Basically, it'll allow the pressure to build in there, but not enough to explode. So the CO2 gas will come from the fermenting sourdough, and it'll vent out, but it stays, you know, it doesn't let air back in, if that makes sense. Because that's what you want. You want to keep air from getting back in. So, you know, we'll make sourdough a couple of times a week, or I will. Um, I'm still working on my actual bread recipe. I like it. But I want those big open holes like you get at stores or restaurants or things. And I think it's because my ferment is not long enough and I don't overnight it. And some other things that I've been playing around with. My temperature wasn't always hot enough in the oven. But it's nothing that I'm adding. I think it's just the process and how much time I'm taking in between proofing and your second proof um, and punching it down and those kinds of things. So, I'm working on it. There are two great groups on Facebook. Um, sourdough Starters, I think. And there's another sourdough one that I recently joined as a suggestion. But that's how I'm figuring out what's going on and why my recipes are not turning out the way I want. Um, I mean, it's edible. I like it. Junior Farm Boss will eat a whole loaf in a day. Um, and, you know, we're talking probably a whole, like, a, a sandwich loaf of bread. She'll go through one of those in a, in a, a day or two. She loves her sourdough. Um, so now we're just making it better. So that's something that we make, and that's how we do it from scratch. And with the bread, it's we like to use the bread flour. Um, I know we're supposed to be going less, less carbs, more keto for better health, but it's hard. I love my bread, and homemade bread. I don't like the store-bought bread. Um, it just, it's its different. It, it tastes chemically. I don't know how else to describe it. Um, when we were getting bread from a warehouse to feed the animals, you know, sometimes bread wouldn't go bad for three, four months. Now, that's, that's kind of disturbing that it would last that long because of all the preservatives and chemicals in it. We actually found some that were three years old that were at the bottom of a bin. Now, granted, they were probably protected from air and everything, and they were squished, but there was still white bread. There was no mold in it whatsoever after three years. Usually, they turn black and turn to this liquid goo. These were still, you know, whitish color. Granted, it was squished and it was soggy, but it was still, you know, there wasn't any mold or bacteria on it. Anyway, so, you know, making your own breads are not hard. And just, a lot of people don't have time. You know, fortunately for us, I'm on the farm, so I can do these things in the middle of the day and have more freedom. I'm not on as tight of a schedule. But a lot of other people don't. It's, it's not that difficult to mix your bread up, let's say, um, at night or when you get home. You, you proof it, and then you let it rest in the refrigerator overnight, and you can bake it the next morning, or you can wait until the next evening and get a, 
a more fermented start. So putting it in the refrigerator versus leaving it on the counter or in a proofing area slows down the yeast, kind of puts them into a coma sleep. So they're still alive, but they're eating much, much slower and they're let much, much less activity. If you were to leave it out on the counter for that long, depending on your house temperature, it's going to be just, a, it's going to overproof and it's going to turn into just this, it, it won't rise, it'll be a big, flat, nasty mess. So think about like a, a melted tub of ice cream, that's kind of what it's going to come out to. So if you're going to do something like this, you can, you just need to work around some of the schedules and plan ahead, maybe get your ingredients all together at one point and then mix it the next day or do all your dry ingredients and then ready do your wet but it's not difficult it's pretty easy to do um, as I said we make our own breads um, biscuits muffins uh, what else do we do make our own pancakes from scratch or our own waffles from scratch um, when you do feed your sourdough so if you're not actively using the part that you take out every day or every other day or whatever you're taking some out to feed it if you're not using that for something, you can store that in the refrigerator for months. I've seen where some people have stored them in refrigerators for years. You just add to it way less. So instead of adding to it every day or every other day, you might add it every two weeks, every month. Much slower growth rate in the refrigerator. I saw where a San Francisco company had a sourdough that's been going for like 40 or 50 years they just keep it in the refrigerator and feed it once a week, once every other week. So you can make it last a lot longer. Um, but anyway, if you're not baking with it, you are not using it for bread, You can. there's lots of things you can use that take away from to not just throw it away. So when Brandy was making, my wife was making sourdough, she was throwing that away every day. And it drove me crazy. So you can make things like... Uh, crackers. You can make waffles with it. You can make pancakes with it. You can just store it long term. I recently found out you can dehydrate it and save the sourdough starter yeast and everything in a dried form. And all you have to do is rehydrate it, which is just put water on it, to bring it back to life. Now that's pretty cool. We haven't tried that yet, but that is something that you can do with it. And in a lot of the barter groups that I'm in, that's what a lot of people are looking for is sourdough starters. I don't know why they're so desperate. Either they can't remember to feed it, they're not staying on the schedule, or maybe they just don't have the time to, to feed it every day. I had to end up setting an alarm on my phone to feed it because uh, I would forget. I'd get busy and it would be three or four days, sometimes three or four weeks, before I'd remember to feed the sourdough again. So I just set an alarm every day at 9 a.m., feed the bread. And I actually have an alarm that says, I love bread, and it's a big song. It's really cool. If you want the song, I can send it to you, or send you the link where I got it. Um, but you can make a lot of things with that stuff that you would normally be throwing away. Waffles, pancakes, sourdough, um, you know, bagels. Uh, what else? We've made pretzels with it. Sourdough pretzels. Um, and then if you're making too much bread every day for, for you guys to eat and it's starting to go to bed, make it into croutons. Croutons are pretty easy. They store for a long time. And it's essentially just dried bread. It, it's, 
it's stale bread. Um, you can you know, coat them with some olive oil, some herbs, spices, a little seasoning. Put them in the oven and bake them, and then they're crunchy. And you just store them on a shelf in a container. Pretty easy. So let's see. It's gone through a couple of our breads, biscuits, croutons, dry cream soup mix. All right. This is a new one that we just started doing. And we saw it on TikTok shorts or YouTube shorts. Or, I don't know. I don't do TikTok. We Wild Woman does TikTok. Um, I saw it somewhere on Facebook. Facebook are for the, all the older folks, I think, I'm assuming. TikTok and Instagram and even, I don't even do Twitter, but there's other ones that I don't even know about, but younger generations are fine. Makes me feel old. So what it is, it's like um, powdered milk, um, like cornstarch and some other dry ingredients that makes a base. And then what you can do is add um, dehydrated celery, and now you have cream of celery soup. Or you add chicken bouillon, and now you have cream of chicken soup. Or you add powdered mushrooms, and you have uh, cream of mushroom soup. And so this is also that you don't have to have liquid stored in a can for all these things, and you can just have them as dry ingredients. So what we have is the cream soup base, and then all of the separate ingredients that we would make later. So instead of making a big batch of cream of celery soup, we just have a big batch of the dry powder mix and then our powdered celery, our powdered mushrooms, and our um, chicken bouillon, or you can use chicken stock. It really doesn't matter. If you have canned chicken stock, you can use that. It may or may not be as creamy as it would be if it was dry. Because we use the dry ingredients in a lot of other things. So our dried celery we use in a lot of soups and seasonings and, and different dishes. Same way with the mushroom powder and the same way with the chicken bouillon. We use it in a lot of other things. Whereas if we were to put that in a dry soup mix, it can only be used for the soup mix versus being used for a lot of other different things. Hope this makes sense. This is part of why we like cooking from scratches. If you get down to some of the base ingredients, you can use the same ingredients in lots of different meals versus having one prepared meal. So I'll give you an example. Um, I don't know, because we haven't bought them in so long. Uh, I don't know, let's just say like one of the hamburger, not hamburger helper. Okay, hamburger helper would be an example. Hamburger helper, you've got a seasoning pack, noodles, and then you provide the ground beef. Some of them call for milk, or some of them call for some other different things. Um, I can't remember if there's any butter in it or not. I don't think there is. Anyway, it's one box, one meal. Whereas, if we were to make all those things separate and keep the base ingredients, you now have pasta that you can use for tomato and um, macaroni. Or you can use macaroni and cheese. Or you can use um, macaroni for like a... a spaghetti type uh, meal with spaghetti sauce <coughs> you can use it with alfredo sauce you can use that macaroni in any number of things you can make macaroni art with the kids I mean you can use it for a lot of different things but then you have your seasoning packet now you can buy um, powdered cheese we found it at the Amish stores the grocery stores but we now know that you can get it on Amazon as well it's 
it's actually cheaper at the Amish stores because they buy it in bigger, like 50 pound bags, and then they break it down into smaller containers. But you know, we've done that and made our own macaroni and cheese from scratch using the cheese powder, or my own cheese sauce, or nachos using it, or you know, any number of things. But what I'm saying is, the hamburger helper meal can only ever be used as a hamburger helper meal. I mean, you might be able to do chicken helper or tuna helper, but it's pretty much one meal. Whereas if you do it from scratch, those ingredients can be used in countless other things besides the one dish that it was intended for. It's also cheaper. So, that being said with the, the soup mix, it's kind of bringing that up. Taco sauce. Now, we make our own taco sauce, and it wasn't because we necessarily didn't like the ingredients in it, because most of most of the taco sauces are pretty basic. It's like vinegar, tomato, and, and some seasoning. Um, we were running into a, we have a particular brand we like, and we were running into during the whole COVID pandemic and supply shortages. We couldn't find it. We went to like three or four different stores, and it was never there. Uh, plus, it was an Aldi brand, but it might have been a Kroger brand or something. I'm thinking all these has uh, tacos on, so it must have been a Kroger brand. Anyway, we had one brand we liked, and we went to several stores, couldn't find it, so we found our own recipe, and you know what? We like it better. Again, we get to use our own tomatoes that we've grown. Uh, we do some of the, a lot of the spices and things ourselves, so we know exactly what's in it, and if we ever run out, we have the base ingredients to make it again. We don't have to go to the store for one particular bottle. Um, we make them in mason jars, and it's fairly easy now, depending on what you like. Do you like hot taco sauce? Do you like more vinegar taco sauce? Do you like chunky taco sauce? It's going to be a matter of personal preference and opinion, you know, what you like, but it's super easy to make. And I don't want to give you a recipe because, you know, I don't really know ours. It's kind of a little this, a little that, until you taste it, that it's right. Wife usually makes it. We're also not producing any of the waste from a lot of these things because we're buying in bulk and we either package in mason jars or you know, our own containers. We're not going through all these plastic boxes and um, you know, glass jars from the, the taco sauce and the lids and all of this. We, we've reduced our waste considerably. I mean, just from buying in bulk and cooking from scratch, our family of three, three and a half when, when the boy would come visit, but you know, when the girls were living us, we had a family of, uh, what were we, five, six, um, that we were going down to like one, maybe two bags of trash a week uh, when we were buying a lot of the prepackaged stuff because we were so busy, we were never home, uh, everybody was running and this kind of stuff. We bought a lot of quick, easy meals, or we go out, and that was expensive. Um, I mean, now it's expensive to go out to eat, like, the three of us. So, we wild woman, my wife and I, going out to eat, even at a fast food place, you're talking 40 to 50 bucks. Fast food, $50 for, like, burger, fry, and a drink kind of thing. It's just getting crazy. Um, for 50 bucks, we could probably eat for a week, if not two weeks, at home. So go figure. Uh, you know, there, there's a price to pay for being convenient. So, uh, you know, taco sauce, we make our own. We bottle it. We make our own taco seasoning. Um, again, that was because if you're having your pre-made taco seasoning, 
it's only pretty much going to be for tacos, fajitas, nachos kind of thing. Whereas if you're making it from scratch and you're making, you know, a bundle of it at one time, we just mix our own with a lot of the base ingredients. And it's it's salt, paprika, you know, turmeric, turmeric, cumin, uh, I don't know what else you put. Garlic powder, onion powder. And some of these we've made our own. Like we've made our own garlic powder. We've made our own onion powder. Um, a lot of these things we've done ourselves. So when you uh, make your own mixes like this, you can use the base ingredients and make smaller portions if that's not something you use a lot of. Super troopers are out on patrol today looking to get tickets. Anyway, digress. They had a whole bunch of speed trap up here. So let's see, we got taco seasoning, wine. Ooh, that's one of my favorites. I make our own wine. Now, you would think it's hard. It's not. If I can do this, okay, granted, 20 years in chemistry, lab, and all this, I can make wine. I understand the fundamentals. I understand all the chemistry behind it. But let me tell you, I'm lazy. I'm cheap. I forget things. I want to take as little steps as possible. So I make what's essentially prison wine. Not in the toilet like the prisoners do, but it's pretty close. Um, the very basic, simplest wine you can make is apple wine. And it is, you go and buy a one-gallon bottle, uh, doesn't matter what kind of container it's in, plastic or glass, uh, but it has to have no preservatives, 100% apple juice. All these carries it. Walmart carries it. Uh, Kroger's carry it. Uh, most most food places will carry it. What you want to do is take maybe a cup or two out of it, drink it, you know, whatever. You can make vinegar with it. I'll get into that later. Um, Jesus, these people must have been scared from the, the super troopers. They're doing like 10 under the speed limit. I can't get around them. I digress. So let me go back to my wine. So, one gallon, take out a cup or two, drink it, do whatever you want with it make it into a marinade. I got all kinds of recipes of what to do with that, you know, apple juice that you're not pouring it down the sink. Now you want to get over? Um, anyway. So, you want to get you can use bread yeast. It's not the best, but it's going to be the cheapest yeast you can find. Now you can get champagne yeast, which is what I would recommend for like a dollar fifty, dollar seventy-five is the last time I bought it. What a get it for it. You can get this at um, brewing and fermenting stores. I know there's a great one down in Terre Haute called For You Brewing. Great guys. They love to talk about wine, brew, spirits. They like to talk about everything that's interesting to me. It's one of my favorite places to go. My wife hates it because I spent way too long there talking with the guys. Anyway, um, get yourself some champagne wine because it's the least flavor that will be added to your apple juice. So you want to take your apple juice, um, if you want it stronger, add more sugar, like uh, half a cup to a cup of sugar there. Or honey, you can add honey, that, that'd be like a half a cup to a cup of honey as well. Um, you don't have to, but you can do it, that just adds more cost to it, but it would be stronger if you add sugar to it. You can just use the natural sugar in it. Um, so your apple juice is like three bucks, four bucks, dollar seventy-five, and yeast. And then you want a balloon. So the 
has to be able to stretch over the top of that bottle. So if that's a regular size balloon, a rubber balloon, or a latex balloon is what you want. Not a water balloon because those typically won't stretch across there. Take a pin, like a straight pin, needle, or whatever, put one little hole in the balloon. Once you put your yeast in there, keep it in a warm place, you know, in your kitchen, you know, wherever, where it's going to stay above 70, ideally. If you really want to do this, use your warm, seed warming net because that will get your wine going super fast. Um, put it on there, and as the yeast start to eat the apple juice, or the sugar in the apple juice, it will start producing alcohol and carbon dioxide. And as it produces carbon dioxide, that balloon will inflate. So what you're wanting, wanting, waiting to watch for is that balloon to stop standing upright and start leaning over. That means either A, the yeast have consumed all of the sugar and there's nothing left, or B, your alcohol content is so great that it killed the yeast. Either way, your wine is going to be, for the most part, done. Now, you can drink it right then and there, or... <coughs> sorry, mouth is dry. Or you can cold crash it, which is you put it in the refrigerator, put your lid back on it, loosely, not tightly, and put it in the refrigerator. Because those yeasts are still alive... They will continue to ferment the little bits of sugar here or there, or you may have some like super yeast to survive the higher alcohol content, but either way, they're still in there and still active. Once you cold crash it, it basically puts all the yeast to sleep and they settle down to the bottom. You can drink the, the wine right from there. Do not shake it up. Just kind of pour off and leave the yeast sediment on the bottom. Simplest, easiest, cheapest way to make wine. Adding sugar or honey gives you a higher alcohol content. I would not be able to tell you what kind of alcohol content your wine, your apple wine plain will have. It all depends on what yeast you use, the temperature, the sugar content. <coughs> but I can tell you, if you use sugar or honey to add to that, it will boost it higher than most of your store-bought uh, wines. Probably going to be in your 14 percentage range of alcohol. Most wines are like 5 to 7. Sometimes, you know, up into the 10%. That's the super cheapest, easiest way to get into it. And if you want to try that you get successful at it, step up your game a little bit more. Maybe invest in some uh, winemaking materials have like a one gallon jugs that you can do different types of juices and things but apple juice is the simplest you can start experimenting with cranberry juice grape juice any number of juices as long as there is no preservatives in it cranberry juice if you use straight cranberry with no preservatives you will have to add extra sugar or honey because cranberry is kind of antibacterial uh, it does have a hard time getting the yeast going without that extra sugar bump plus cranberries do not have a super lot of sugar to start with and it really helps to put it on a seed warming mat because they like it warmer um, you may if you use a seed warming mat in the apple juice kind of setup 
you'll probably get wine in under a week, depending on your temperature and your sugar content and those kinds of things. So, some people take months to let those just naturally ferment and, you know, develop flavors. It all depends on what your goal is. Do you want to get alcohol cheap, fast, and easy, or do you want to have more refined flavors and undertones and this and that? For the most part, my main goal was alcohol fast, cheap, and easy. I've started to develop better, more uh, refined skills since then, but I'm still pretty much fast, cheap, and easy. So we have made things with wine of, let's say, peaches or, you know, pears, uh, blackberries, black raspberries, blueberries, cantaloupe, watermelon, pineapple, bananas, coffee, chocolate, uh, honey, which is mead, uh, what else have I done? Combination of all those things, coconut wine, uh, any fruit I've pretty much tried to make a wine out of. And some have been successful, some are not. Um, and these are from, like, raw fruit. So, if you're going to do a raw fruit versus a juice that's been sterilized and everything, you will want to basically put it in a pot, boil the snot out of it with sugar, so that kills any wild bacteria, wild yeast, and those kinds of things that may taint your container. And what I'll do is, either before boiling it or after boiling it, you kind of mash it with a potato masher so that's a more of a puree or run it through the blender. No seeds, no pits. You don't want any of those things in your wine. Um, you know, if you wanted to, stems and things are alright. I don't care. Um, but what I use is the one gallon um, they're basically wine jugs or fermenting jugs. They cost about $4.50 at the wine stores uh, or the fermenting stores. You can order them on Amazon by the case as well. Um, and then, you know, water, uh, oh, uh, what do you call it? Water lock. Air lock, that's what it is. Um, those are like usually a buck fifty, two bucks if you put in there. So you'll boil the snot out of your fruit, if you puree, whatever. You can even use canned fruit as long as there's no preservatives in it. Anyway, back on topic. And, you know, um, add some sugar into it. I don't measure, so cup here, cup there, doesn't matter. If you get it too sugary, it's too sugary for the yeast to go and it'll end up killing them. So you got to be careful on how much sugar you put in. I'll never do more than, I want to say, two to three cups of sugar per one gallon. It also depends on what fruit you're using um, or juice. And then boil it all together, no yeast at this point, and pour it hot into that container. Be careful because I can tell you hot syrupy uh, sugar will stick to your skin and it burns bad and it doesn't cool down very fast. Same way with some of the more uh, fruits. If they're real thick, they will stick to your skin while you're pouring it. Pouring it into a smaller container like that, it does bubble because the air doesn't have anywhere to go. Now you could ferment in a one gallon or five gallon bucket with a lid and a bubbler. I don't like doing that. One, but I just, just don't like using plastic as much. Um, it's another step that I don't like having to do. I forget about it. Lots of different things. The glass, you can sterilize easily. You can pour it hot. It's not 
temperature dependent. You can see through it, so you can see if there's any issues. Anyway, I just like the glass jugs better. I have a one gallon, I have a half gallon, and then I have a five and a six gallon. I have a bunch of those. So I make I usually make five gallons at a time, five or six, just because I don't like having to mess with a bunch of little bottles. Um, Alright, so we're boiling it, putting it in the jug hot, and then um, I usually will put my water lock on it because as it cools down, it's going to pull air in there, and that water traps a lot of the, uh, what do you call it, bacteria and things that would be coming in there to possibly contaminate it. Now, once your bottle, you can feel it on the outside, is blood temperature to like bath temperature, so slightly warmer, then you can pitch your yeast. Again, I typically recommend champagne yeast um, because it is not a flavor that will be added to it and it gives you a higher alcohol content. Um, let's see. Pitch your yeast, put your water lock on it or your airlock, and then once you stop seeing bubbles, it's done. You can cold crash it and get your yeast off to the bottom, and then you can like pour off you know, directly into bottles or pour it off into, you know, drink it right out of there. Um, but your wine, your yeast is not dead. So if you are using corks, you need to kill the yeast. And that's um, potassium metabisulfate is a chemical that will kill the yeast. Or you can use, um, that's, that's the only thing I know to use. I particularly like to use, I don't necessarily kill off the yeast. I like using flip-top bottles, and they're reusable. I don't have any waste. I'm not having to buy corks, and they burp. So I like sparkling wine. So if you do not kill off the yeast, it will, um, what do you call it? Shoot, I missed my exit. I always do this when I'm talking. Um, if you do not kill off yeast, it will ferment in the bottle and carbonate it, so it becomes sparkling wine. If you do kill off the yeast, it would just be regular wine, and it's not going to matter that much. So, um, it's your choice. Do you like sparkling wine or not? I can tell you this, that if you cork it, and you put them on your side to rest, and you have not killed the yeast completely, it will shoot those corks out across the room, and depending on what... What you used in your wine will color your walls and color everything else that you have purple or red or any other color that you might have going on. So, lesson learned, we've had to repaint the ceiling more than once from corks exploding with, you know, um, black raspberry or other types of wine. I have no idea where I'm at. As I'm driving around aimlessly because I didn't use my navigator, <laughs> we'll continue to talk. All right, so we've talked about carbonating it and non-carbonating it, um, how to kill it, the different kinds of wine. Um, you can also make... Now, this is illegal according to the... FTA, 
firearms, tobacco, and explosives, um, that you can distill it by freezing it, which is what the Colonials did, because they did not want to pay for apple brandy. There was a tariff and a tax, according to the government, the British put on apple brandy. So what they would do, the Colonials would make hard apple, hard apple cider, which is just basically apple juice that they fermented. And after the fermentation, they would do it around the wintertime, and it would freeze in barrels outside. So they would just take the ice that accumulated on the top and throw it away. And as they kept doing this, the alcohol concentration would get more and more and more. And the reason being that alcohol won't freeze at those temperatures, but the water would. So it would basically freeze distillation is what they were doing. Now, if you're doing this, do it on your own, and I've given you the warning that the government says that's illegal. Or you can buy a still, which um, brewing brew for you it does have stills. Uh, we personally got ours from Mile High Distillery, but ours is a um, herb basket distillery or still, so that you can get essential oils from herbs. Um, in theory, that's what we're using it for. We're not using it for alcohol. Not at all. So, let's see. That was winemaking. So, um, you can get into, you know, adding oak spirals, um, aging it. Well, some of my wine is... It usually doesn't last a year, because I drink it before then. So, but I've moved off of wine for a while, just because I got bored with it, and moving on to new things, and, um, you know, some of the wine I have is like two to three years old, still good, um, wine doesn't necessarily go bad, you have some of them that are hundreds of years old, so, um, before you invest in corking and all of this complex equipment, make a couple of cheap batches, see how you like it, and, you know, then decide to go and invest. So try a couple of different off-the-shelf just juices. You don't have to have wine-making juice that you get from the, the stores that they, the, like the brewing and fermenting stores. They'll tell you that's what you need to have, but you don't. You can use off-the-shelf juices as long as there's no preservatives in it. Watch some videos. There are hundreds of YouTube videos. All these things that I'm telling you that we do, we learned how to do either from family and friends teaching us, going to classes, or watching it on YouTube. So YouTube has become a great resource of learning skills and people sharing skills. Sometimes you got to be careful on, you know, how people are doing things. Um, wouldn't necessarily trust everybody. So usually what we'll do is watch seven or eight videos and pick common themes or common, um, processes that we like or that are easier to follow and anything that seems like one-off or that just doesn't make sense we usually ignore those so you know something to think about um kombucha Ooh, that's another good one um if you drink kombucha or you know what kombucha is it's basically a yeast fermented fizzy drink um they're not supposed to contain alcohol, but apparently anybody who's drinking my kombucha tells me it takes it has alcohol in it. A lot of it. 
get you drunk. Now, that was also because I didn't necessarily know that they had alcohol. I never tested it, but my wine was, you know, 20 plus percent alcohol because I was using distiller's yeast as opposed to champagne yeast. And so I didn't necessarily notice the higher alcohol content. So kombucha, we, you start with a mother, which is like your base yeast that you would add to things. And it's a fermented tea drink and you can flavor it with lots of different things. My particular favorite was black tea with cranberry kombucha. Um, so basically you'll brew a tea, cool it, add your, or you can make your, get your own uh, mother, which is like the, the it's a, called a scooby, but it's like your, where your bacteria and your yeast live, and it's, it's pretty gnarly looking like snot, anyway. If you know anything about kombucha, you'll know what the different, you know, types are. And uh, you add a little bit of that, put it in a bottle, and it starts eating the sugars from your tea and your cranberry juice. And that will give you a fermented drink. And it's got lots of probiotics and good stuff for your body. Um, however, I learned later, you're not supposed to drink three and four bottles of this a day, which I was. Um... You're supposed to like have it infrequently or you know regularly but not that much per day so um it's it's easy just like the wine if you can make wine you can make kombucha if you can make kombucha you can make wine it's not that much different of a process um my mother i had it for i don't know two or three years and finally i just i was done with kombucha and i moved on to more winemaking and order um, a mother from Amazon. You can get them from usually from some of the health food stores. The fermenting stores usually have them as well. Uh, Great Fermentations is one in Indy. Um, For You Brewing is another one in Terre Haute. Those are the only two that I know of because those are the only two I've ever used locally. Some of you are all over the world so you'll have to figure out some of these things on your own. Let's see. Oh, I'm back where I should, I should be now after my little detour. Anyway, um, let's see. So, again, so I like these flip-top bottles that we get from um, Aldi's. So, seasonally, Aldi's will sell sparkling lemonade and sparkling um, pink and yellow lemonade. So, we'll buy it by the case, which is six bottles at a time. I think they sell them for like uh, two bucks, three bucks a bottle. Um, but if you were to buy flip top bottles brand new on Amazon, it's like three or it's like four dollars or five dollars per bottle. So why buy empty bottles for more when you can buy full bottles that have something in them and just reuse them? It's my theory on it, at least. So every year we buy several cases of these, and we wild woman drinks it during the summer. And basically, I buy it just for her to have the drink, but I want the bottles. So, um, you know, she'll. I don't like the sparkling lemonade personally. I like hard sparkling lemonade, which you can just ferment it with lemon and sugar in the same bottles. Um, so, she'll drink those, clean them, sanitize them, and then 
you know, that's what I use for my kombucha. That's what I use for wine. Um, we use that for some of our syrups that we make as well. Um, just, it, it's a repurposed bottle that I really like, and it's a really good price. So, um, look for those at Aldi's. You may be able to get them other places. So, all these ones are clear. They do seasonally sell a ginger beer. It's not beer, but it's it's just a fermented ginger ale. It's a ginger ale. Um, seasonally as well. And they sell a pumpkin ale or something, pumpkin beer, I don't remember what it was, in a brown bottle that are smaller. So the clear um, pink lemonade ones um, are, they're a little bit smaller than our normal wine bottle, but it's it's like 1.7 liters or something, I don't remember. I'd have to look it up. It's not in front of me. But anyway, it's, it's, it's in between a bottle of wine that you would buy at the store and it's a little bit smaller than that let's see I'm going to have to take a pause here and go into my auction house and pick up my stuff and I will be back here in a moment and we will talk about hard cider and some of the other things And I am back. Sorry for that. What seems for you guys is momentarily was about 15 minutes for me. So I'm at my auction house. I was picking up some orders because I was been banned for, oh, three and a half months from the auction. I've been buying too many lots of things and the senior farm boss was saying I have no more room for anything. So I haven't been able to come. Anyway, so I go in there, not being there for since beginning of January. I was looking at my invoices was the last time I bought anything. And the girl behind the counter comes up and brings me my stuff without me ever telling her about my invoice and anything. I had been so often to the auction picking up stuff that they knew me before I even came up and had my orders ready just by seeing me in the parking lot. So I hadn't been there in a while thinking, you know, I have to tell my name and what order and all this. Oh no, she ended up at the counter. I'm like, this is sad that you know me and I've been here so often. I haven't been here in three months. She's like, yeah, we were kind of wondering. You were on a regular schedule that you were here every other day, every other week. I was like, yeah, my wife told me I couldn't come anymore. She's like, well, what happened? I was like, well, I wanted the 42 cans of ketchup. Yeah, there was 42 cans of number 10 ketchup that went for 50 bucks. Now, I don't have any need for 42 cans of ketchup. But that was a hell of a deal, and it isn't going to go bad. So Farm Boss allowed me to bid, but I wasn't allowed to go over a certain amount. Well, she saw some aluminum foil and parchment paper on it. She's like, I want that. She also wanted some laundry, some other, not laundry soap, but it was dish soap, because we like the Dawn dish soap. She wanted that, too. Yeah, that went more than she wanted. I didn't get out of the 10 lots, so 10 pallets of 42 cans of ketchup in each lot went, you know, that was how much was there. Then they had pallets of hot chocolate that Junior Farm Boss wanted, and all of those went for more than I was willing to pay. I'm only willing to pay half of what retail price is. So if it goes above that, plus or minus a little bit, I'm not allowed to buy it, according to the boss lady. I mean, she's controlling the purse, so... 
I can only go what she allows me to get. Junior Farm Boss and I have managed to finagle uh, buying stuff and then reselling it and making enough money that we're being able to self-fund our auction purchases. Um, I was reminded that Produce Auction is starting soon and if I wanted to go there, I will need to stop buying things from the online auction. So, needless to say, my auction days are limited. Back to the list of things that we make from scratch. So, hard cider. Hard cider is essentially what you made with your apple wine. That's that's really all it is. You can do your regular, like, okay, let's just say you have apple trees. You will need to grind those up to get the juice. Now, cider is just thicker apple juice that hasn't been filtered as much. The apple juice you get at the store has been, like, through all kinds of filters. There's no... Um, little bitty pieces of apple so it's see-through it's like a golden piss yellow color only if you're dehydrated it shouldn't be that color but anyway you know what I'm saying it's it's very clear whereas cider is basically they've ground and crushed the apples and passed them through the juice through maybe like a cheesecloth once and that's as filtered as it's going to get to make hard cider you would just let that naturally ferment with yeast um, so you could take that juice, put it in a bottle with an airlock, and all the airlock is doing is preventing oxygen from getting in. So when the, the cider or the juice is fermenting, there's a blanket of CO2 that's covering the surface, and that is heavier than the oxygen. Um, so as long as it's fermenting, it's going to stay on top and it won't go rancid or it won't turn into vinegar. Um which that's how you make vinegar, but we'll get into that in a minute. So you take your cider, put it in there, put your airlock on it, or you could put it, possibly put it into the um, flip top bottles from the sparkling lemonade I talked about earlier and just let it go to town and do its thing. And then, you know, after so many days, if you're using the balloon method um, for, or an airlock, the airlock will stop bubbling, the balloon will flap down, then your stuff is ready to drink, and it's hard cider. That's as easy as hard cider is. Everybody around here, where we're at in Indiana, goes crazy about the hard cider and the cider every time apple season comes around. I'm like, I don't know why you guys are paying out the wazoo for this hard cider when you can make it yourself any day of the week. I don't know why it's so special. It's the whole novelty theme and whatever. I don't get into all of that. So another thing that we make, kind of going along the drinks and the, the cider, um, is sodas. So we can make our own, or pop, or whatever you want to call it. You can fizzy drinks, carbonated drinks. Um, we ended up starting off, well, first I started off by making my own root beer. And you can buy a root beer flavoring solution, Amazon or any of the brew stores, um, and you add... You take an empty two-liter bottle, washed clean two-liter bottle. You put so much of this liquid in. It depends on, you know, how flavory you want it, you know, these kinds of things. Um, so much sugar, and you can control the sugar, which is kind of cool. And then, you know, you fill it up with um, natural spring water or, you know, distilled water or filtered water. You do not want to use tap water if you're in a city or anywhere else like that that chlorinates their water 
because the chlorination will kill your yeast. I mean, you can always let your um, city water sit out for a day or two and let the chlorine come off of it. And it kind of evaporates out. We're on spring water, so we don't ever have that issue. And I always forget to tell people about that. So go back. If you're listening to the wine in the water, um, you're wanting to use non-chlorinated water for this. So you can get bottled water at the store. You can you know, let your own water sit out. You can get distilled water, whatever you want to use. I like the spring water because it has minerals and things in it that help feed the yeast and it gives it a more natural taste versus a sterile taste when you're using distilled water. But it is pure if you wanted to go for, to be able to isolate different um, characteristics of your yeast or your wine or drinks and maybe those minerals are having an effect on it, you can go with distilled water to try and eliminate some of those um, elements. Anyway, so the soda water you use, you buy your, your flavoring, you add your sugar, you add your water, and then you cap it. And it has to be a two-liter bottle. It cannot be a juice bottle. It cannot be, you know, any other kind of plastic bottle. It definitely cannot be a glass bottle, unless it's a glass bottle that's rated for pressure, because as this ferments, oh, yeah, you got to add a little bit of yeast to it. Um, champagne yeast works, but then you get alcohol in it. I didn't know this the first couple of times I made this. This was like, I don't know, 20 years ago when I made my own uh, root beer. Just like a pinch of yeast, and it starts fermenting, and then what stops the fermentation is either A, cold crashing, or B, the pressure gets so great that the yeast won't ferment anymore because there's so much carbonation built into it that it won't go any further. Um, so you, you can, you know, as the yeast is going, it's producing CO2, but it can only produce as much CO2 as can be dissolved into the liquid, and at that point, it cannot produce any more. So, you would, you know, within a day or two, maybe a week, you get your um, carbonated root beer, and I later learned that there's alcohol in it, which I had been giving this to the kids and didn't think anything of it. They're not harmed any. Um... But you can also feel the pressure on the bottle. So, like, day one, you can kind of squeeze the sides of the bottle. Day two, it's a little tighter. Day three, it's even tighter. And depending on your house temperature, by day four, you may not be able to squeeze it at all. And that's about when it's ready. You can pour it out and drink it there. Now, if you pour any out and drink it, it will repressurize that bottle. Um, you may lose CO2 if you do not, you know, the carbonation, if you don't drink it relatively quickly. With a two-liter bottle and several kids and myself, it would last a day, maybe two. Then, you know, I tried cola. Senior farm boss did not like it at all because it did not taste exactly like her Cokes from the can or Cokes from the two-liter. So she wouldn't drink it very particular about it having to taste exactly the same. At least she used to be. She's um, uh, not so much anymore. Anyway, so we did that, and then we discovered SodaStream. So, Amazon was having one of their deal of the days or something, and I'd been seeing it, and I'm like, hey, it's like 50% off, let's give it a try. We were hooked. So, SodaStream is basically a smaller... Um, CO2 canister, 
and you carbonate like it's not even a liter bottle it's like 0.9 liters or 0.7 liters at a time you carbonate the water then you add the flavorings so they have tons of flavorings so she likes black cherry fizzy water um, cherry what else blackberry or black raspberry maybe i'm not quite sure what all she drinks but they sell these little bottles that you can back flavor it and that's all there is i mean some of them are sugared some of them are not some of them are flavored uh, well they're all flavored but they might have sugar-free alternatives that are sweetener or you can add your own sweetener uh, which could be sugar or sugar water or stevia or monk fruit or monk fruit stevia, uh, sweet and low, aspartame, all of those, you can flavor it with, you know, sweeten it with that if you want it sweeter. Um, what I like to make um, is carbonated water, you add a splash of lemon juice, I add, um, it's basically, it's stevia extract powder, so it's a one pound container of stevia extract powder which it's like one teaspoon is like equivalent to three cups of sugar so i'll put one teaspoon in one quart of water let it dissolve and that's what i use for my basically simple syrup so it's like a sugar water no calories i don't believe it messes with my um, sugar levels in my body and then you know, sugar water, I use my stevia water, lemon, and then CO2 water after that. And it's like a sort of 7-Up carbonated uh, lemonade. So it'd be the equivalent of what I get from Aldi's, but with only three ingredients. Now, you add a little bit of vodka or moonshine or you know, alcohol to that, you now have a hard um, lemonade, which is really nice especially in the summer. Um, but anyway, so with this, the soda stream, they have tons of different flavors. We Wild Woman likes her cream soda and root beer from this. Um, the problem is those little canisters are expensive of the CO2. So I think they're like $32 each. And then you have, um, you can get money back when you bring them in to refill them. But we found out that For You Brewing will, oh, that's really cool, pass in a truck that has ingots of either aluminum or lead on them. That's a huge. Anyway, sorry, digress. For You Brewing will refill those little canisters while you wait. I think it's like five bucks or something. I don't remember what it is for each one of them. But they talked us into getting a CO2 system, so for like $300, I know it's a big investment, we haven't done it yet, you can get a 5 pound CO2 canister and carbonate like, um, I think it's 2.5 gallons of water at a time, and then you back flavor that, so we'll constantly have the, the flavored, or the CO2 water it's a lot cheaper to use those five pound tanks which they can refill um, and you just have a tap like a, if you think the old soda jerks at you know for 
old time movies that I don't want to say old time movies, but it was like 40s, 50s, and before where they had a soda jerk and you go to the soda stream, the soda um, fountain, and this and that. Same thing. So then you can get your flavoring, same flavorings and everything, but it's a lot cheaper to use the CO2 and replenish. So not only do we not have all of the two liter bottles or the cans, we have a lot less waste, we have a lot more uh, diversity. So, you know, what we can make with this, we can make our own fruit juices and do it. We can carbonate apple juice. We can carbonate anything that we want. So it makes it way easier, simple, cheap. Um, now, For You has this awesome setup where they took a chest freezer and attached a, um, a temperature controller so that they turned the freezer essentially into a refrigerator. And then they fill, like, I think they had nine different items in that refrigerated chest freezer that were on tap at all times. It could be wine, it could be beer, it could be, you know, just soda water, it could be Coke, it could be, you know, any hard cider, any number of things, but it's all cooled, all on tap, and it never goes bad or flat. So, uh, you know, if you like wine, you can make two and a half gallons of wine, have it on tap, chilled all the time, and you don't have to worry about it turning um, into vinegar or going south because you only wanted one glass as opposed to a whole bottle. That's our goal when we start expanding our kitchen is to do something like that. Super cool. Never even thought that that was a possibility. Seeing it, it made, blew my mind of all the things that I wanted to do down the road. So we make our own sodas. Way cool, way cheap, way easier. So many different possibilities than what you can even get at the store. And part of this is we've been seeing, you know, my wife likes um, vanilla Coke. She's not been able to find that in the store for months. And so finally she just started making her own. Um, all right. So we did soda. We're going to talk about alcohol. Making your own alcohol. We did that with... Um, you know, the wine, the kombucha, and fermenting your own stuff. We talked about doing the freeze distillation, which, disclaimer, the government says is illegal um, to make it harder. So that's just, if you're making it, if you're making the hard cider using the freeze process, it's called Applejack, which is essentially apple brandy when you get it high enough in alcohol content. But it doesn't have to be apple. It can be peach wine, cherry wine, blackberry wine, any of those kinds of wines, you can still do the freeze distillation, or you can run it through a still. For the most part, anybody who I've talked to who does distilling, and these are people who have licenses, run distilling um, distilleries, I know at least three different people who have run distilleries commercially, and then one who does it for fuel, so big mega plant. For the most part, Unless you're selling, like, regularly big, hey, look at me, I'm selling gallons of moonshine, or, you know, you're offering it up online and these kinds of things, the ATF is really not going to bother you now. That's what they told me. Uh, I'm not going to say that that, you know, go from this guy on the podcast said that you're not going to bother me. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that if you're making moonshine or spirits for your own self and you're not really distributing it or selling it or 
any of those kind of things. For the most part, I don't think anybody's going to bother you. My personal opinion. So what these guys said as well. Um, so if you have your own still, make your own um, items that do this. I can tell you from personal experience, potato wine that you would turn into vodka sucks donkey balls. Oh my god, that is the most foul-tasting shit I've ever had in my life. Um, and would equate to paint thinner that has been run through a hobo's dirty underwear. That's how bad it was. Oh, it'll get you drunk, but it tasted horrible. And no amount of purifying it or sweetening it or mixing it made it taste any better. So, when I went to my distillery buddies and told them about my process, because, okay, back up a step. Why am I making potato wine? We got 10,000 pounds of potatoes once from the food bank. And after, you know, shredding it, freezing it, dehydrating it, canning it, I got tired of potatoes. What else can you use potatoes for? We can make vodka. Let's make vodka. The Russians make vodka. All these other people make vodka. Yeah, vodka is one of the hardest alcohols to make because it has to be so pure and it has to filter it so many times. So, went to my distillery, guys. I'm like, what did I do wrong? Why does vodka taste like nasty ass? And they all laughed at me. Three different stories. I wasn't talking to these guys at the same time. Three different times I was talking to these guys. They all laughed at me when I told them this and they all said the same thing. You did potatoes and you only for, you only still, you know, distilled it off once, right? I'm like, yeah, that's the problem. So, all of these vodkas that you get, even the cheapest of cheap vodkas that, you know, you get at like Walmart or Kroger that just is like the off-name brand, they still them multiple, multiple times have multiple filtration processes, and the columns they use are multi-million dollar columns. So if you don't know how a still works, it's basically you have a big pot at the bottom, you boil the alcohol or the fermented material, so that's your mash. So that, in, in, in essence, it would be your wine that you're boiling off. You boil it off, and at a certain temperature, because it'll only burn, boil at 212, you know, at a certain temperature, the steam starts to condensate at different points. So, uh, alcohol, ethanol, is I want to say 96-ish or somewhere. Maybe it's 100 and something. Yeah, 100. So 96, it would be boiling in your hand. So it's like 170, 180 degrees. I don't know. I have to look at my gauge. I have to look at my book again. It starts to come out, and um, it'll it'll turn to a steam, and it condensates back down. Well, that condensate has different levels of purity. And these commercial units, they can get all kinds of different, basically, uh, taps or vents off that gets different level of purities of the alcohol. For my particular still, it's only one tap, one vent off. So you have to be very careful of where you're getting things off of it. So I distilled it off, and I got my alcohol, and it was high enough that I could light it on fire. So I knew there was a, a, a good deal of ethanol in it. But what they all told me was take all that that I got that I believe to be pure alcohol, clean out my pot, still it off again. Collect all that of what I believe to be pure 
versus the heads and the tails. If you don't know some of these things, you need to know more about distilling what heads, tails, and hearts are. It's the beginning, middle, and end of the run based on temperature gradient. Anyway, so he says, you do this about five times and what your original alcohol content will be will be much smaller, but it'll be purer and better tasting. Well, shit, that's way too much work for me. I'm not doing that that many times. So, potato, wine, and vodka, not on the table anymore. They also laughed at me because of the, the yeast I was using. And all three of them asked me, you're using distiller's yeast, aren't you? It's like, well, yeah, that's what you're supposed to use. Goes, no, 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 no. There's lots of different yeasts for different applications. I didn't know this. This was news to me. So the more you talk to people, the more things you learn. And so being friendly, they, these people offer these information, you know, gladly while we're, you know, they're loading me up with different spit grains and things for the animals. So apparently there are specific strains of yeast that yield better whiskey and bourbons. Okay, didn't know that. There are certain strains that will just produce alcohol. It tastes like crap, but it's meant for fuel alcohol, which nobody's drinking that. Well, most normal people aren't drinking that. And then there are different specialty wine yeasts and beer yeasts and, you know, mead yeast. There's all these different strains of yeast that have different purposes and applications. Blew my mind. Did not know these. I thought a yeast was a yeast, and you had like a bread yeast and an alcohol yeast. And maybe there's like, you know, champagne yeast and different wine yeast for different flavorings. But if you wanted a higher alcohol content, you needed distiller's yeast. Oh, no, no, no. There's all kinds of yeast. So now I'm learning about the different yeast. I mean, whoever thought that making spirits and wines and things would turn you into someone who needs to know basically a fungi expert of yeasts. And so... One of my distillers, uh, King Julian, I call him, you know, he was telling me about this. It's like, oh yeah, we have specialty ones for the different whiskeys and the different bourbons that they make. And I'm like, never knew it. And so, you know, For You Brewing actually has those specialty yeasts in small quantities for the home distilling units. When I was talking to King Julian, he says that they have to buy, you know, this big quantity and it's like thousands of dollars because they make big batches and it's especially yeast they have to go through all these different kinds of shipping and handling and, and whatnot i'm like that's way too much hassle for me so discussing with the guys at, at for you brewing they they're like oh no we got this see these little these i mean we're talking like it looked like little drug packets little dime bags but it was yeast that were specific for certain types of distilling they had some for whiskeys they had some for um, oh what am I thinking of brandies they had vodka they had tequila I'm like never knew he's like oh yeah we'll teach you all kinds of stuff here so now you know so going back to the whole making your own alcohol you can do it the prison way which like me and take it from me don't do potatoes um, and you know what you can do potatoes don't say I didn't warn you it, it tastes like dirty hobo ass filtered not that I necessarily know what hobo ass would taste like but I'm guessing that's what it would taste like alright moving off of the alcohol no not yet I'm looking at my list there's one more thing vinegar 
you can make your own apple cider vinegar. And some people are like, oh no, you gotta get the mother so that it's still alive. Yeah, you can do that too. And you can do it for pennies. You do not need to get the specialty stuff at the store and this and that. All apple cider vinegar is, is apple wine that went, was exposed to oxygen. That's it. So, you can take wine and you know let it go through its fermenting process with your bubbler. When it stops bubbling, take it off for a couple of days. And at that point, you'll either have enough alcohol that it won't go bad, but the alcohol mixing with the air, the regular oxygen, turns it into vinegar. That's it. That's all you have to do to make apple cider vinegar. Now, what you could do is if you are making hard apple cider, you take all of the bits that didn't go into the liquid, so all of the peels and the cores and the stuff to, that you've already extracted all the juice from, you put it in a pot, fill it with water so that everything is covered, boil it so it kills everything, pitch your yeast into it, or you can just let it go with wild yeast. The problem with wild yeast or you may get bacteria in it as well. That's why I like to boil it first and it kills everything. Pitch it with whatever yeast you want. Cover it with cheesecloth. If you're pitching the yeast, you can't do it when it's boiling. Gotta wait until it's blood temperature or slightly above. Um, blood temperature just means put the inner part of your wrist on it. If it's hot, don't put it in. If it's roughly the same temperature, then you're good to go. Um, put your cheesecloth over it so no like bugs and things or gnats and things can get into it. And just let it sit. And the yeast will do its thing, the oxygen will do its thing, you strain everything off, and you got apple cider vinegar. That's it. It's that simple. We make this as well. We add this to animal water sometimes. We add it for cleaning, uh, baking, and, you know, different recipes that call for apple cider vinegar. We make our own. Pretty easy. You store it in glass or plastic bottles because it is a natural fermented product. At that point, you may want to vent it every once in a while just to make sure there's no uh, CO2 buildup going on. Applesauce. We make our own applesauce. So not just regular applesauce. We get all fancy. So we have uh, a bunch of apple trees. I'm going to say more than 20, less than 50 apple trees of various kinds. Um, most of ours that are the heavy producers are up at our tiny house property and that's all we bought the property for were fruit trees that were 20 years old that had never had anything done to them. So we have some tart and some sweet and some just plain apples, high pectin apples, um, pretty good variety and we grind them up. So what we'll do with these is my process because I make the applesauce is I take either I'm, I'm even getting to the point where I don't even do some of this stuff so I used to take the apple um, slicer you know it has a little core center you put it on and it slices it into the wedges and then throw all that into a pot I'm even beyond that now I'll quarter them with a knife throw them in the bucket in the pot don't peel them don't even wash them I don't do anything just quarter them throw them in a pot boil the snot out of it once it comes, you know, most of the apples are tender, uh, not mush, but I mean, you boil it until the apples are tender. Depends on how many apples, how many, what the pot size is, you know, all those kinds of things. Um, and then I run them through our KitchenAid food mill. Seeds, pea 
peels, stems, everything. And the peels, stems, and seeds spit out the back end. The applesauce comes through the food mill and then collect it, I'll boil it again, and put it in jars. Put it in hot, and then I pressure can it. You don't have to, you can water bath can it, but I pressure can it just like that. No sugar. I do add a little bit of lemon juice to it to add up the um, acidity. But I pressure gain everything because it's better safe than sorry. Almost everything. There's some things I don't because it turns them into mush. But um, can it, put it on the shelf. We have some that are going on 10 years, still bottled and, and no issues. But when you get fancy, so when you're, you, you cook all your apples, sometimes I might add something else into it. And that might be strawberries, blueberries, peaches, uh, blackberries, whatever we have on hand if we wanted to try something different. And because apples are more, uh, have more cellulose in them, it takes longer for them to cook and get soft. So I'll cook them to almost the point where they're done, then throw some of the softer fruit in there. And the only reason I'm throwing the softer fruit in there is to kill any bacteria that's on it, boil it for another five minutes, and then run everything through the food mill, mix it all together. We Wild Woman likes the strawberry applesauce. Um, she also likes her blueberry applesauce. She loves frozen blueberries. So those are her two favorite, and we make them in pints, quarts. Um, I don't know if we've ever done a half gallon, just because it's a lot of applesauce to eat at once. And, you know, what I've found is the best applesauce is a blend of apples. So not just all Granny Smith, not just all the, the Red Delicious, which is the worst apple on the market, in my opinion. Um, not all the food is, like, since we have a bunch of different apples, it's just a blend of all of them together. Um, now, during apple season, if you wanted to buy bulk apples, like, we have a U-Pick Orchard here in town. Um, there's several other places around that you can go pick them. Beware that a lot of those places do spray regularly because they have a very high... Um, touristy attraction, they don't want ones that have cotter moths or apple cedar rust or blemishes and dents and dings. They spray them heavily for pests and funguses. So, be warned on some of those. And some of them do not even come from those orchards. They buy them from Michigan and ship them in by the semi-load and then resell them at these farm stores. Not all the places do that. I know some of them do. Um, and that's only because of knowing people on the inside or people who are involved in that particular uh, business have told me that not all the things that you see at some of these roadside stands or farm stands are grown by those people. I can tell you from visiting the produce auctions that some of the people that I've seen that run produce stands or even at the farmer's markets do not grow those items because it's in the exact same box. The same people I saw buying them are to turn around and sell them the next day as their own product. I don't. I think that's a bad practice, and in some places it's illegal. But you should be able to ask questions, and if they can't answer certain things or they don't want to answer, chances are something's not exactly right. So applesauce, super easy. Now, if your kids are younger, like we bought these for Wee because she was all into the squeeze apple pouches that you just, you know, turn the lid and 
suck the apples applesauce out of the package. We bought her those. You can buy those ready-to-fill pouches on Amazon. We had a bunch of them. We used them for like a couple of months, and then it was too much of a hassle. And she had outgrown it at that phase. She wasn't eating them in the car anymore. So they're still sitting in a drawer. She just is fine with eating them out of a, you know, a mason jar. If she, if we're on a trip somewhere and she wants to bring applesauce with her, she brings her spoon, she brings her jar, and just gets a pint of it and, you know, cracks it open in the truck wherever we're going. When she done, screws the lid back on, we're good to go. Don't need to have all those fancy things. What? No, the hood is not open. The wife's car's yelling at me. She's got a sensor issue in the, her hood. So, lard. Um, a couple of podcasts ago, I told you how to make lard. We make our own. Super easy. All it is is pig fat that's rendered down. And rendering it down means you're cooking it slow. Um, we use a crock pot, and I go run it through the fat that I get from our butcher. Uh, run it through our meat grinder, and it gets done faster. You can just cut it in chunks and do the same thing. Um, this is where cracklins come from. Eat that. Most country folks have. A lot of city folks have never heard of it. It's, cooked. it's the little bits of meat that were still left on there that are crunchy. Um, but we put it in the crock pot on low, cook it for days sometimes, depending on how much there is. Um, we get our lard from either our pigs or our processor actually saves back pig fat. From, every, from the hogs, and they always keep uh, 200, 300 pounds of pig fat in their cooler versus sending it off to a landfill. So all I had to do was go ask them for them. They loaded me up, and they can't legally sell it to me because they're not rated for that in the state. But I give them, you know, Oreos or creamers and things that we've gotten at auction that we have surplus of. You know, gift card here or there for, for lunch for everybody. Just to say thank you that, you know, they're saving this stuff, not necessarily for me, but they're saving me a cost. Um, they also save back a lot of the uh, beef bones, like the leg bones and things, to either make as soup stock or faro if you were grilling and you use that on your steaks, or dog bones, which we've been given to some of our dogs. is the same process as lard, but it's using beef fat. So, basically, if you have a cow that you butchered, have your processor save all the fat for you, most of the times you have to tell these people ahead of time that you want this, because they will throw it away otherwise, because 90% of the people who get um, animals processed do not want the fat, the bones, the organs, so that just all gets tossed into basically a landfill or a rendering plant. Rendering plant goes for makeup and cosmetics, dog food, uh, grease. I mean, there's all kinds of things that the animal byproducts go into. But if you're paying for a whole animal, you might as well get all the parts of the animal. So beef lard is just, or beef tallow, is just rendered down beef fat. Same process. Run it through the meat grinder. If you don't have a meat grinder, you just cut it up into smaller chunks. Put it into a crock pot, cook it on low until you get the liquid, strain the liquid off. We will actually, ooh, that was creepy, the road 
didn't merge, but the truck decided to go into two lanes. Um, lost my train of thought. I'm talking about lard. No. If you want to listen to how to process the lard, go through the other uh, podcasts. It's, it's got more stuff. I still got more things on my list, and I'm getting too close to home. This was already pretty lengthy. Um, what is that? Curing seasoning. Okay. So, uh, we recently processed a boar. We didn't realize it before. We thought it was a hernia. It ended up he had three testicles. That's in that story, too. But, um, if you wanted to cure your own meats. So, a while ago, there was a, all the crazes. You wanted non-nitrated cured meats. So, you don't use nitrates and nitrites on your bacon and hams and things, which is part of the curing process. Um, so you can ask for that, and only certain processors would use non-nitrate, nitrate cured uh, salts. What they would use is celery salt or celery powder. So it's non-nitrated, uh, which was supposed to be bad for your heart, what people were saying back then. I haven't heard any more studies on it. You know, this was like 10, 20 years ago when I heard this. So that was the whole big craze, and everybody was into the more um, healthy animal processing, and people were paying premiums. There's one particular farm, which I will never say their name publicly, that, you know, advertised this. I absolutely despise this processor. Won't say it again publicly because of legal actions that they may take for me bad-mouthing them. I can only tell you my personal experience with them, and it's pretty lengthy. Anyway, so all it is is um, powdered celery with salt. That will do the same thing as the nitrate nitrates. Now, what's funny is, recently I learned that the celery salt has more nitrates and nitrites than the commercial stuff that's supposed to be for um, curing meat. So, go figure. Anyway, you can make your own. So, back to the boar. The boar was processed. They would not cure my bacon or ham because he was a boar because there is a potential um, tainted meat with this, uh, with boar taint, which means it tastes like male um, hormones in it. It it supposedly gives the meat a different flavor. I personally can't tell. Maybe either I'm not sensitive to it or we've not had animals with it. Um, Wife's not been able to tell any difference. I can definitely tell the difference between cured and non-cured bacon. Don't like non-cured bacon. Um, but you can use celery leaves or powder as your part of your curing agent, which I learned recently since we have a plethora of celery growing. Um, next one is the dog and cat food. So we've become displeased at a lot of the dry, kibble dog and cat food about the amount of just junk ingredients in it and then being able to find it. So our cats especially are very particular to the brand of cat food they get. Now we tried, we couldn't find their brand, so we got similar brand, what we thought, and they all turned their nose up and wouldn't eat it. I mean, literally they were bitching at us. They would say, we'd rather starve than eat that because it was different. So, you know, 
after a while going to like four or five different stores and listening to them bitch every day we finally found a bag to get us through and then when our local's place got them we cleaned them out to have surplus because our cats suck listening to a bitch all the time that they don't have the right kibble fast forward that we got a deal on boneless skinless chicken breast to be roughly a dollar a pound right now in the stores it's like $2.99 or more per pound so that was a steal of a deal problem is it was like one of those where it somewhat warmed up but not enough to make it a safety issue but they were all stuck together so when you had thought you would have five pound bags all stuck together you had to cook it all at once so what are we going to do with this well we've been shredding it we've been doing different things or cooking chicken for several nights well i came up with you know the whole raw food diet Maybe this was our way to switch over to get the cats and dogs better food that we could produce from our animals or things that were from our farm and not have to buy kibble anymore. So we would have it on hand and it would cost us almost nothing because what goes into it is stuff that we could produce for really, really cheap. Definitely cheaper than buying kibble and definitely not having all of the junk that's in the other ones. So we watched a bunch of videos, a bunch of different sources, did a bunch of research, came up with some different recipes that we could try with things that we had on hand without having to go buy specialty materials or specialty ingredients. So what we came up with was two different formulas because the cats and dogs could not have the same thing. Either cats couldn't have what was in the dogs or the dogs needed more stuff than that was in the cats. So we came up with two different formulas. The cats was ground raw chicken, egg yolks with the shells ground in, um, salmon oil, which is like a pump for, for pets, and then um, 369, I think is what it is, vitamin E oil capsules, which was for people. Because that's part of my Lyme regimen, I think, that I'm on. Anyway, so we put all that, ground all of the, the chicken, blended the egg yolks and eggshells till the shells were like fine, fine granular particles. Um, salmon oil, I'm trying to think of what else. The vitamin E oil was ran through the mix grinder as well. We ground it all up and we mixed it all together and tried to give it to them. The house cats turned their nose up on it. I mean, they kind of lick on it a little bit, pick at it, but they're not real big fans the outside cats they eat that like it's no nothing i mean they beg for it and we were feeding them in the in our like our little mud room so that we knew that they were the ones getting it and we knew that each cat had a right portion because we didn't want to feed one cat three portions and another cat get none so we made sure that each one had a portion we were monitoring who was eating they loved it so and we also fed them a lot less because when we feed the outside cats kibble, well, the chickens get it, the turkeys get it. We haven't found a really good way to feed them free choice kibble without all the other animals getting into it, or the dogs would eat it. I mean, the dogs had their own food, yet they'd eat the cat food first. <clears throat> so we went away, you know, we've tried that. House cats, eh, they're not so much in it. Uh, we did notice that the cats the inside cats have a skin allergy 
that we were told was a flea allergy, but despite not finding fleas on them or being treated multiple times and bathing them, they still have this. So what we're thinking is it's more of a food allergy than a flea allergy. And uh, that's why we're trying to get them to eat this more natural food. So we're going to have to keep trying them or maybe play around with the formula a little bit um, to make it more appealing to the house cats. Now, the dog food, we used what we had on hand. We had a freezer at one time that went out, and there was quite a bit of meat in there that was for people, but we weren't 100% sure. I mean, it thawed, but it was still cool, and when we cooked it, it kind of had, wasn't an off taste, it just was different. So... We've kept it around thinking, you know, worst case scenario, we'll, we'll use it some way. But we hated to just throw half to a whole freezer worth of meat away. So we had all this sausage that was bagged up. Um, individual one-pound packages. So um, I took six pounds of the sausage, all of the egg whites from the cat food, another 18 count of whole eggs, so eggs, yolk, and the shell, and ground that up to fine, fine particles, mixed it in with the sausage, mixed in maybe a couple of pounds of rice. So we had cooked chicken the night before, shredded it, and there was a lot of leftover juice and liquid in the pressure cooker. Um, I want to say maybe three to four cups worth of liquid. So we took that liquid, figured out whatever rice we needed for that amount of liquid, cooked the rice in the pressure cooker, and it just absorbed all of that chicken water and leftover juice from the shredded chicken. And cooked all of that, ran that through the food mill so that it was no longer rice grains, it was like more of like a meal. Then we rehydrated um, sweet potato chips and apple chips that we have um, dehydrated for the horses and you know, goats and sheep as treats. So maybe three or four cups of each of those rehydrated in water, ran that through the food mill or through the grinder. So everything was really finely ground, you know, um, think of like hamburger type consistency. Let's see what I think that was all that we had in there. Oh, they got some 369 oil as well. And I did not add any more fat because the sausage had enough fat in it ground all that, mix it all up. Outside dogs, absolutely love it. They go to town. Inside dog, not so much. He kind of licked at it, sniffed at it. He'd prefer eggs. Yeah, we learned our lesson that he's allowed to have two eggs a day and no more. His uh, digestive system does not like eggs. Not that he has the shits or anything like that. He just had the most raunchy, nasty-smelling gas. That, you know, him laying on the couch next to us while we're watching TV at night and then putting all these air biscuits out there that have just rotten egg smell. He, he made us open some windows in the middle of winter. Let's just say it was that bad. And it was me. I was trying to be nice to him. We had a bunch of eggs. I didn't want to, you know, put, like, six eggs in a carton, so I just gave him six eggs for dinner one night. Yeah, that was a mistake. Um, so those were the two. They were the dog and the cat food. We store them in the refrigerator or freezer. Uh, we got 
these little eight ounce containers that came in one of the, the food bank runs that had beans and chickpea meals in them, and there were hundreds of them. So rather than throw them away, we washed them, packed eight ounces in each one of those containers, which had a lid, they're food safe already, put them, you know, so many in the refrigerator for the next couple of days, and the rest of them went into the freezer. So it's funny that the inside dogs who don't get, or inside dog and inside cats who don't have as much exposure outside, turn their nose up at the people food, but the outside animals just devoured it. Um, so, you know, try that. Do that on your own. I'm not saying our recipe is right. It's just what we used. We're going to probably play around with it some more. But there's lots of different videos about raw feeding and raw feeding with kibble. Different nutrition requirements. Different requirements for different animals. What your base ingredients are. Is it chicken? Is it turkey? Is it rabbit? Um, now we're looking at getting back into rabbits. We did rabbits once before. But rabbits just for the the dog and cat food part of it. Um, you know, we can feed a lot of things to the pigs and chickens, and they produce produce pork, eggs, and meat. Um, but rabbits are one we can feed grass, hay, trees, uh, tree branch like leaves off a tree called tree hay. You know, weeds from the garden, all these things, and then they would produce dog and cat food or food for us versus having to go buy kibble and buy these things at the store we can produce it ourselves negate the cost of it just cost us more time but it's more healthy it's better for them it's more natural to what they're eating and we're not running into supply chain issues or you know store issues where they may be closed or not um we're looking at making our own sugar this year by growing sugar beets. Um, you can grow sugar beets just about anywhere, and we have like five pounds, which is, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of seeds. They're little bitty seeds. Um, basically, you grow it like any other beet in your garden. You cut off the top, wash it, grind it up, boil it, and, and we're talking grind it up like just your you know, cheese shredder or shredder on your KitchenAid or shredder in your food processor, boil it all up, then drain it, get that liquid off, and boil the liquid down, and you have sugar. It's that easy. Um, you know, we make our own syrup, so if we can make our own syrup from tree sap, it shouldn't be that much more difficult. You just add one more extra step of, you know, growing the plant and then processing it. So, that's on our goal for this year. Now, I did say we make our own syrup. We make black walnut and maple syrup. Um, pretty easy. I don't think we may have gone into how to do it, but you tap the tree um, in springtime, collect the sap, boil it down, get it to a certain consistency, and you have syrup. Um, we pressure can ours just to make it last longer. There's different steps on that. Um, you don't want to go to a full syrup consistency because once you pressure can it, it removes more liquid out of it or more water out of your syrup. And you have the potential to go straight to maple candy or black walnut candy versus canning the syrup because you've lost too much liquid out of it. And it crystallizes. Um, let's see what else is on the next one. Uh, we made our own cheese for a while when we were milking our goats. It was farmer's cheese. It wasn't like you know, Parmesan. 
ricotta cheese. Um, pretty easy, wasn't that hard. Um, we used raw milk, and you know, for the ricotta, it's basically in the farmer's cheese. You can use um, enzymes to coagulate it and make it into like cheddar or some of these other ones. We did a farmer's cheese, we did one with uh, the ricotta, which is you take the whey that's left over from the cheese and add like lemon juice to it and it curdles what's left and you get two different kinds of cheeses from one uh, batch and the whey is still usable after that and you can feed that to animals chickens pigs whatever it's got a lot of protein and nutrients still in it for those um, you can dehydrate that as a whey protein for like you know, I don't know if you're doing smoothies or shakes or something uh, we make our own creamer. We did for a while until I won an auction lot that had, I don't know, 200 boxes of little creamer packets. Each packet here, each box had 196 little creamer cups. So we're stocked up in creamers for like ever. Um, but the creamer was just um, a sweetened condensed milk in the can. Um, I want to say my wife made it. It was that, some milk, and, you know, different flavorings to it. And she made her own French vanilla creamer pretty easy. It's better than some of the crap that they, they um, put in the market now, which has no creamer, no milk product whatsoever. It's all, like, uh, oil-based, hydrogenated oils and, and different things that it, it actually had no creamer in it. So... We did it from a cheapness and better health reasons, but then we won this and, you know, we we literally got 200 boxes or more of this creamer for like 80 bucks or something. I mean, it was stupid cheap. Um, make our own ice cream. So when we were milking our goats, we were, um, we made our own ice cream out of, we started with a custard. So it was egg yolks. Um, raw milk, uh, sugar, and vanilla. And I believe that's it. And then we ran it through the ice cream machine. I mean, four ingredients. Look at just store-bought ice cream and how many ingredients are in it. So we made uh, vanilla ice cream. We made chocolate ice cream. We made vanilla lavender, uh, vanilla blueberry, chocolate chip, chocolate mint, um, I mean, you could do a lot of things, and it was all super simple just by adding things, um, depending on what your flavor you wanted. Uh, my wife will never eat ice cream that's not homemade anymore. The custard that she likes, she says, raw goat's milk ice cream, there's nothing like it. So, you know, if we have access. Now, we're looking at getting a dairy cow, which gives us a lot more dairy to start playing around with. So, that's, you know, butter, that's cheeses. That's a lot more things than when we were getting a half a gallon from our, our dairy goat. And, you know, that was enough to keep Wee Wild Woman in milk for chocolate milk and cereals and stuff. But it wasn't a lot to play around with. So we'd make like a batch of ice cream and then that deplete all of our overage. Or we were keeping some of the milk for future... Um, We'd stockpile it for if we ever had to feed bottle babies again. That 
we would not be buying the powdered stuff or having to pay for that as an expense. Um, we make our own pizzas from scratch. For what we buy in the bulk ingredients, we, you know, let's say we go to Papa John's and for our order, it's two large pizzas, two orders of um, one breadstick and a cheesestick and then some sauce and it's like 50 bucks. Whereas that same $50, if we have to spend more up front, but we can make a lot more pizzas. So it brings our pizza cost per pizza down to like $2, $3 per pizza by baking it yourself, making your own dough and those kinds of things. So it's a cost. It's also you have a lot better control over the ingredients. Well, shit, I'm home now and I still have like 10 more topics. Um... I guess we'll have to do a two-parter on this. So I'll keep my list so that way I know where I'm left off. And we'll make this into a two-parter. So let's see. We are leaving off on pizza. And we'll go into more details about pizza. So I'll have to remember that we left off on pizza. And then until next time, I am the Fat Man Farmer. And hope this helped you out, you guys.